I think like, again, like YouTube is trying to find the videos that will make you happiest at any given point of time on any given device. And you can modulate that by disliking a video. Like that means that you'll get less videos like that or by saying you're not interested in video. So you can sort of curate your experience there. And and then like just find creators you like. And exp- I spend like an hour every day just watching YouTube, like outside my own personal interests. I try to find like what's happening, like what's what's being, what's innovative, how are different creators approaching it just to learn what YouTube's like. And also, like, I think people should think like an advertiser, too, because I know we had like we were doing the ad friendly guidelines and we're like, oh, oh, no, it's not going the way we wanted. But like at the same time, people are like, I just want to put my video up and just get ads on. It's like, yes, but maybe Kleenex doesn't want you dropping an F-bomb the second their ad ends. You know, like maybe wait a few, <laughs> right. wait a few seconds. Welcome to Geared Up. I'm Andrew Edwards. I'm John Rettinger. And John. Andrew. Hey, we, uh, we, have, a, we have a big week. It's time. It is time. It is a big week. I don't know how... We keep topping guests, but I think we've reached the pinnacle of the mountain, the, z- the zenith, the, the apex? acme, the apex, the acme of guests here. Mm, I think you're right. We like to bring in multifaceted. You guys got Jimmy on? Hey, you you, you wait until we introduce you, sir. <laughs> we like to bring in multifaceted guests, usually guests who are aware of things like smartphones, cameras, Correct. laptops, right? Multifaceted and multi-talented. Exactly. Now we're bringing in someone who knows not just many different types of consumer electronics, many different industries, many different companies. Fair. Many different personalities, if you will. Knows a thing or two about a thing or two. Yes. It is the one and only, the incomparable Renee Ritchie. How are you doing, Renee? You are so kind. It's a holiday encounter today, so I'm drunk on maple syrup and poutine. Thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. What, what, What is the holiday? So in most of Canada, it's Victoria Day in honor of Queen Victoria. But in Quebec, because, you know, we don't we're not down with the British monarchy. It's Patriots Day, which is more ambiguous. Wow. So we're going to still celebrate. Yes. We're not going to celebrate what everyone else is celebrating. Well, we, you got Memorial Day like next week or something, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But we don't have like a Memorial Day in one area and then a British Tea Party Day in uh, <laughs> <laughs> somewhere else. Louisiana doesn't have a different day. <laughs> yes. So Renee, you are the YouTube creator liaison. Yes, sir. I would love to hear about just briefly about the pivot yeah. that we had. Because you went from working for a big company to working for yourself to working for a big company. The, perhaps the biggest of all companies. One of the biggest. Yeah. So as you know, John, as you can relate to more than many others out here, Mobile Nations, the company that I worked for, Crackberry, iMore, Android Central, got sold yes. off to a giant British media empire. And things were just different. Like I had a very frank conversation with them where they're like, you know, honestly, if you just made videos about Nintendo Switch and we put those in our house player with our house ads, we'd be super happy. And I'm like, ah. Now, to be clear here, iMore, where you worked, was one of the top Apple news and rumor websites. So when you say just make Nintendo Switch videos, it's like, wait, what? Well, so I was like working like by that point, I was editorial director for the whole network. So like while they were off doing fancy business things, I was trying to keep the articles running on time. But I'd gotten back into content because I missed like just creating stuff. So I started doing YouTube for them. But it just got to the point where they're like, yeah, this, you know, this stuff is fine, but it'd be more valuable to just do like buying, you know, like commerce stuff, commerce content, buyer's guides, shopping stuff. And I was feeling like a change anyway, you know, and like mutual friends like John Gruber and Dave Wiskus and Ben Thompson were like, you should just go Andy. You should go do your own thing. So I took that opportunity to do that. I gave iMore one month's notice because I didn't want to, in case there was a March Apple event, I didn't want to leave them out in the dry. And then the whole world closed. Yeah. Yes. 
And I just panicked. I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I decided I couldn't get my YouTube channel back. They're just like, we have no idea how to do that. So no. So I just started over and I made it my goal to pass the performance of that channel within one year. And so that was sort of my North Star. So instead of doing like making bread or like instead of getting all into sourdough or knitting, I just woke up. <laughs> I mean, well, we had like we had a lockdown for 18 months and it was like a severe lockdown here. Like I didn't see my mom yeah. for like a long time. So I just like woke up, made a video, posted that video, made another video. And that's like how I kept going. And while I was doing that, I was trying to learn, like, we've all known each other for a long time. Like, I think I've known you guys like 10, 12 years. And like, I met Justine in 2008, I met Marquez, I think like 2013, something like that. So I've always known about YouTube and I was curious about it. So I wanted to learn YouTube the way I learned Apple. So that was the only way I was going to be able to ramp up fast enough. And it turned out that my agent, Dave Whiskus at the time, was gaming with Mr. Beast, with Jimmy during the pandemic because everyone was so bored. And through him, I met Todd Beaupre, who runs Discovery and Growth at YouTube. And we became friends. And Todd's like, hey, you know, the liaison role is open. This was like 2022. And I'm like, yeah. look, I've gone independent on YouTube. I'm making, <laughs> honestly, it's the best career I've ever had. I'm making more money than I ever made working in traditional, like, or even like blogging or tech media. I'm never going back to a company. And he's like, well, just go talk to them. So I went to talk to Jessica, who you met, who's my manager now. And it was really like one of those Steve Jobs moments where it's like, do you want to keep making soda water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with us? And <laughs> Because like I was making videos and I loved it, like helping people choose what iPhone to own or what like Mac to buy and all that. And yeah. that's great. But the ability to help creators, especially like marginalized creators who all they really have is their voice, the ability to help people like that at scale is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I went from, I never want to work for a company again to, oh, do I have a chance in hell of getting this job? It's an interesting pivot. People might not know, actually, when Renee kind of alluded to at the beginning, when I sold Techno Buffalo, the Renee was who I reached out to originally for the introductions. So I think you're doing an incredible service to the creator community. It's almost like a face to YouTube, right? You don't have to go through a portal and get a canned response or call and maybe get a reply. People don't always have YouTube representatives to talk to. So you're kind of all of the, the Internet's go to YouTube guy. I imagine your mentions are insane. Yeah, let's talk about that. What is yeah. the creator liaison? What does that yes. mean? So it started off like Sundar Pichai, who's the CEO of Google and Alphabet, he wanted a search liaison because he thought search was like this faceless thing that people interacted with, like this, this desolate yeah. machine. And he thought a human face on that would be great. So they got Danny Sullivan, who was running Search Engine Land at the time. And that was quite a few years ago. And Danny's amazing. And he went to Google. And then they thought it would be great to have a creator liaison for YouTube because people the same way, they see like this faceless algorithm that's cold and like mechanistic and like no one can understand it. And so I spend part of my day inside YouTube advocating for creators. And I just want to say like, the thing that shocked me and it shouldn't have the most is like how much everyone at YouTube loves creators and advocates for creators. And also because creators aren't like a group mind, like everyone advocates for like different cohorts of creators, like completely different communities. And they are so different but they have full-time jobs. So they have to like do a lot of stuff. So I get the luxury of only having to advocate for creators. So any products or policies, like I try to give like feedback from creators. I try to give like creator-centric feedback on all of those things. And then the other half of my job is helping creators better understand YouTube externally and YouTube policies and products externally, because there's so many myths and misconceptions and misinformation about that. So the goal there is just to help creators have like less stress and more success on the platform. And those are like the, it's like half evangelist, half ombudsman, <laughs> like a little bit in between. Do you find it's tough to advocate for creators while working for YouTube or that's sort of an easy overlap? 
because YouTube is so creator focused, like from the top down, like from the CEO down and from like every individual contributor on up, they care so much about creators. They're the ones who bring me in. They're the ones who want to know. They're the ones who want to hear the opinions. That's good. And they want me to find the information for them and figure out what's going on. And again, like sometimes it's hard because like the hard part isn't do we help creators or not? It's like, oh, this might help this group of creators, but it might be not so good for this group of creators. And those become like really hard decisions. Yeah, that's a fair point. I asked you this when we were hanging out at Google I.O., but I thought it was another interesting thing about what you do. You are the global creator liaison, which means you're not just serving people who speak your language. You're serving anyone on YouTube, no matter where they are on Earth. What are the challenges of having this role in somewhere like, let's just say, Japan, for example? Yeah. So, I mean, like a lot of those places, like they have like huge challenges, like North America, most of the time people will understand English to some degree or another. But when you go to like a place like APAC, you have like Australia, Japan, China, Indonesia, Malaysia, like there's just so many languages there that they become like, yeah. even if there was a creator liaison specific to that area, that would still be an enormous challenge. So the way we look at it is like, I'm one person, I don't scale, but YouTube has incredible teams. Like they have the team YouTube, which handles all the stuff on Twitter and on social escalations. They have like a creator support inside studio. And those are huge teams. So what I try to do is they focus on individual creator support and they do that in a tremendous amount of languages and they're awesome at it. I try to look at things that are coming up a lot and then I try to figure out like what we can do and then work with them a lot to create things that can scale. So maybe I'm making a video in English, but there's maybe like a whole bunch of different creator teams in different countries that are looking at that and making their version of it. So I personally have a ton of questions. Yes. And I, I hopefully can represent the creator community at large. The handsome ones, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I also, I want to start broad and then get specific. So advice for, I think it, there's two schools of, of YouTube, I guess. There's, there's the new creators, I think, and then the creators that are more established. Those that are trying and those that have done it. What would be the top three pieces of advice for those that are starting right now? It's hard to give advice people are starting because they don't always look them that they just jump. But I think if you're just starting, I would immerse yourself in the culture as much as possible. There's a whole bunch of really good YouTube educators. They put up a lot of videos. They do a lot of live streams. You can become part of the community. Yeah. If you can take your time, I would like figure out what two or three topics interest you enough that you could imagine doing 100, 200, 300 videos on that. Because if it doesn't interest you enough, it doesn't matter if you're successful. You're like, oh, I hate making this stuff. It's just not a good long-term strategy. And then I would test those things, like make a series of like three to five videos for each one of those and put them out there and just see what people are responding to. And then if there's a clear winner, like just go lean into that and think about the viewer. I think that's one of the things that escapes a lot of people is like the viewers have agency. They get to pick what they're going to watch. We don't ever force anything on people. They have like so many choices. So if you can find people who enjoy your videos, find people who love you, give them more of what you love. I like to say that, you know, Brian Cranston can be in Malcolm in the Middle and he can be in Breaking Bad. But if they were the same show, it would really confuse people. So like if you find out like Malcolm in the Middle is doing great for you, just until you start building your audience and you feel that growth, just lean into Malcolm in the Middle and just give people more and more of sort of that thing to love. And we should also say that if you want more sort of insight like this, Renee does an incredible job on Twitter, especially at YouTube Liaison. It's probably a good, good handle to give a follow to. And what about to established creators, folks that maybe have been in it for a while, they found some success, algorithm change, sort of they're quick to blame the algorithm. How would you steer those folks? 
or just trends have changed, right? Viewer patterns have changed. And what do you do? Yeah. So that's a tough one because it is so like before I, I started to understand how YouTube worked, I was like, oh, the algorithm hates me. And it's such an easy thing to do. It's like when my video takes yeah. off, it's because of me. When my video doesn't take off, it's that cursed <laughs> algorithm because it's like, you know, everybody loves my videos. Why would it possibly be any, any other way? It's the same thing. It's that viewers have agency and it can be anything. It can be like many more creators got involved in YouTube during the pandemic. There are new platforms that are launching all the time, new content types. Yeah. Like there's suddenly snap. Snapchat has stories and TikTok has short form videos and all of these, there's limited attention and it goes many places. You know, in summertime, people go out. Like there's all of these things that can affect views. There's more competition. Suddenly like Andrew Edwards decides he's getting into your space and he's going to just start smashing it. And you're like, but well, he's taking all my, I mean, like there's just so many different variables yeah. that I would just think like the algorithm's job is to follow the audience. All we do is look at or all the algorithm does is look at audience response, which is competitive, and it tries to pull the best videos for the viewers at the time they're watching and on the device they're watching for. So like, if the algorithm is following the audience, the best advice I can give is try to follow the audience as well. And to Andrew's point, the audience moves. So if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting the same results, that won't work because your audience is ahead of you. So you've always got to like think of Maybe your formats are getting stale or maybe like you're not keeping up with not just the trends, but the movements on the platform. It's like the same way a, a recording artist can't make the same album or an actor can't make the same movie. You've got to always think of new ways to like freshen yourself up for the audience. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here. When I, when I talk to folks about YouTube, and they want to know what advice or how to get started or how to grow the channel. This is how I always explain it. And if perhaps things have changed or maybe my mindset is out of date, let me know. So I always say the, the algorithm, as you mentioned, is it gives every video a fair shot. No matter what your channel's done in the past, every video gets a relatively fair shot. Past performance, maybe a little bit less. Poor past performance can dictate perhaps a little bit less, but the video gets pushed out to a small subset of people. The first metric that's sort of being used to evaluate is click-through rate. Are people clicking on that thumbnail and the title? And then once they're clicking, how long are they watching? And if one or both of those are positive, it'll get pushed out to more and more which is why usually in the first six hours, you can adjust titles and thumbnails dynamically and you can see real-time changes happening. Is all of that still relatively accurate? Yeah, there's a couple small things there that I think help the creator mindset is that YouTube will never, well, not YouTube, but like Discovery will never push videos for creators. It will only ever pull them from viewers. So if you think about like you open your phone or you open your desktop, it's gonna pull the videos that it thinks you are most likely to enjoy at that time on that device. Discovery's job is never to push videos for creators, it's to pull videos for viewers. And then like you said, CTR plays a part, but it's also competitive and relative. Like I think some people think my CTR is high, but I'm not getting views. And maybe that's because people are clicking on it, but then your video is not delivering on the promise of the thumbnail and the title and they're abandoning it. Or my retention is really high, but it's only because your core fans love it, but the topic's not broadly appealing. So the casual audience isn't engaging. And so it's not going beyond that audience. And that's fine. Like you can make videos for core audience. So all of those numbers are relative to the performance of the video. And then to your point, like if someone enjoys a video, we're going to look at other people who typically enjoy the same videos that those people enjoy and try it with them. And the best way I can describe it is like little fireworks. So like it finds Andrew and it's like, oh, Andrew loved this video. And I should go back for a second. Satisfaction is our most important metric. We started off with CTR and then around, we, we switched to like watch time. Then around 2015, yeah. we realized not all watch time is created equal. Like people will rubberneck, but they don't feel good about it. So we really want to make sure people have enjoyable viewing experiences. So it's not just the watch time, but it's like your satisfaction with those videos. How is that gauged? 
we run surveys. So for example, every once in a while, I get a survey saying, what's this recommendation like? We'll also look at negative signals. Like, did you say, I don't want, I'm not interested in this topic. I don't want to see things from this channel. We'll look at dislikes and likes. And there's also things like if you watch that video to completion, then you go, oh, I want to see another video from John or another video from Andrew. That's probably a good indicator. You had a really good experience with that video. So we take all of those signals into our modeling. And then like Andrew loved this. John likes very similar videos to Andrew, but hasn't seen this yet. We'll test it with John. So it's like little fireworks. We find Andrew and that might be a pocket of audience and then it'll flare up. Like it might fizzle. Maybe it's only Andrew on this one. No one else in this community liked it. But then we get to John and John liked it. And oh, people like John like it. And those can be enormous pockets of audience. But eventually everyone who wants to see it will have seen it. We never give up on videos. Like we will always keep suggesting videos like based on people's searches or based on social links they follow. Like there's always ways to re-engage. So videos can like pop off again at any time. But like when people wonder like, I got a bunch of views and then it went away. Why did you stop pushing my videos? Like, no, it's like everybody in that little group that we identified who wanted to watch it, watched it. And now we're gonna look if we can find any more people. And sometimes we don't and sometimes we do. I mean, that's fair. And it's, it's a great equalizer, right? A, a channel with 100 subscribers generally has as good a chance as a larger channel to find success. Yeah, it might just take longer. And one other thing you said that we also don't base present performance on past performance. We tend not to look at channels or creators. We look at videos and topics because like if you had like three duds in a row, it doesn't mean your next video won't be the best video in the history of YouTube. And it would be in nobody's best interest if we didn't give that a fair shot. You could potentially do something that severely offends your audience. Like that's the creator side. But from the discovery side, we don't want to miss anything just because like the past videos didn't engage in a certain way. That's reasonable. That also, I assume, would be kind of answers another myth people have, which is I can't take a break. If I take a break, then my next video is not going to be pushed by the algorithm because I've been gone for a month or whatever. Yeah, 100%. Like a lot of the times people say, well, you have these tools like scheduled posts. It means I can't take a break. That's really recognizing that there are different types of creators. Some creators want to close their laptop, go away and never let YouTube again. And that lets them relax. Other creators want to micromanage everything. And they're like, I want to have like three planned posts. I want to have two videos that I've banked go up. And if we didn't let them do that, they would be stressed because they feel like they don't have their hands on the wheel anymore. So we just want to give you those options. And you can think of it sometimes like Game of Thrones is coming back. So maybe like ramp up a little bit before you're like, you've gone on vacation, tease like people on social, do like a community post saying my next video is coming, like make it like a a really satisfying video so your audience re-engages. Again, like we're not going to penalize anybody for taking a break. Everybody should take a break. And historically, Niall Red posts like two videos a year and gets like unbelievable views. Mark Rober posts 12 videos a year and gets unbelievable views. So it's really like every video has that shot. A big question that I get as well is sort of the misnomer of subscribers. I think the influence, the importance of subscribers has waned significantly over the past 10 years. Do subscribers matter anymore in your opinion? They matter in terms of unlocking features, especially at the beginning, like in order to get those things. But I think like if we just look at how big like a platform like YouTube has grown or video in general, the likelihood at any given moment that someone in the small subset of your subscription feed will have published a video, like the best video for you to watch at any given time is relatively low. Like even if you have a thousand, like you subscribe to a thousand channels out of like the millions and millions of videos going live on YouTube every day, the odds of it being in that feed is just much lower. So what we found over time is Like on my channel, I get between 30 and 50% of my views from subscribers. But if I go into traffic sources, only 4% are clicking through from the subscriber feed. They're just, I'm showing up on their homepage and they're watching it. And that's true whether they're subscribed or not. So I think like right now, returning users is the much better stat. 
And like, I've heard some like generationally, maybe people subscribe more or less at different periods of time. Like, so those numbers can go up and down. But if they're regular viewers, if you get someone to watch your video and then watch two or three of other videos, you're just going to be on their home feed. And that's where the vast majority of people are watching these days. And you alluded to kind of what I was, I think, ultimately building to was, I think for most creators, obviously, there's no blanket thing. But if you go and look at where your audience is coming from, it's generally a very low percentage coming from subscribers. So Renee, in your estimation, is every video you make for a new audience? And if people are making videos for their who they quote unquote their audience, are they making a mistake for future growth? No, I think, well, one thing I'm just going to add quickly is that the same thing is generally true for notifications because you often hear like people aren't getting my notifications and they are, it's just they're busy and Apple is delivering quietly and Android is stacking those notifications. And a lot of times people are getting annoyed and just turning off notifications for the whole app, which they can't do. Like if you can't turn on notifications for a channel, if you have them off for the app, YouTube will tell you, hey, turn your notifications on. So this means that they wanted notifications and they got so like overwhelmed, they turned them all off. And so like I have 14% of my subscribers have notifications set to all, only 8% have notifications on for the app, and only 1% actually click a notification because they're busy when it comes in. They go to YouTube later and watch on the homepage. Sorry, I blanked on your question because I was focused on that one. No, no, I mean, are people doing a disservice thinking they should make content just for their subscribers and audience and they're are they slowly niching themselves more than they should be? I think it depends on what your goal is. Like there are some people who their only goal is to have a voice and they just want to put whatever they want up on their channels, like artistic expression for them. They don't really care about subscribers. They don't care about views. They don't care about monetization. In that case, like YouTube is basically just their hosting platform and you do whatever you like. There are some people who are hyper-focused on growth and views and monetization. And for them, generally speaking, YouTube will try to find an audience for any video you put up. But the more that the person who watched your previous video would love your next video, the faster that process is going to be just because it's much easier to identify that person. So we generally say, if it's for the same audience, keep it on the same channel. If it's for a different audience, try it on a different channel. And that's sort of like having Breaking Bad and Malcolm in the Middle, same actor, but like different shows because they're such different audiences. And again, you teed me up perfectly for my next question. YouTube Shorts. And I know you talked about this on at Creator Liaison. Should people be creating, should I create a new channel for YouTube Shorts? Should my YouTube Shorts channel go on my existing channel? And you answered that, I, I think, pretty eloquently, sort of similar to what you said. So I'll let you kind of maybe re-answer that for this audience. Yeah. So it's, again, if you think those shorts are for the same audience, like if it interests you, I like shorts because I like the constraint of thinking about this one minute thing. And also like some people only watch shorts. They're only interested in short form video. Some people only watch some topics on shorts. Like maybe people only really care about one minute unboxings. They don't want to watch a 10 minute unboxing. It's too long for them. Or like a, a one minute dance video is fine, but like they don't want to watch 12 minutes of dancing. So there's some people who only engage with certain topics on shorts. Then there are people who do both. You know, they like watching tech in both shorts and long form. And some people only like long form and they think like hip hop isn't music, shorts aren't video, you know, get off my lawn. But there are so many people watching shorts that if it's a format that you enjoy and you think is complimentary, it just opens you up to an entirely new audience, which is like, I think 50 billion views a day was the last stat we gave out for that. So you have shorts, you have so many different things. So I want to like kind of maybe step back for the creators. You were kind of giving advice to a minute ago. YouTube, you should just be upload your video, right? Maybe throw some keywords in your title and your description, right? And, here, and there you are, right? Then you have comments and everything. Now you have video, which includes shorts, which is a different format. You've got your community tab. You've got stories, podcasts. Live. Live. So does the ideal channel use 
all of these different features or is YouTube just trying to provide an assortment of things to everyone and to allow you to just pick and choose? Like, would my channel or any channel see the most success if we had a podcast, did a live stream, uploaded shorts and long form videos, put stories up showing the behind the scenes, and then also did just typical long form video? It's always going to depend on the channel. Like there's going to be outliers like in one direction who just the more you do, the better just because that's what your audience wants and outliers where it's just they only want one form from you and that's it. So, But in the middle, we've broadly seen that people who engage across multiple formats do grow faster than people who only engage with one. But again, that's going to vary. And what we want to do is give people options. Like these formats of video exist. So people are gonna go somewhere to get them. And we always figure like, if we give you this option and it is the same audience and you have a good strategy for them, we want you to have those options. Like Blackpink was a great example last year. They basically pulled the Marvel Studios playbook where they used shorts to tease and trailer their upcoming music video. So people got really excited about it. Then they dropped that video as like a, a long form video. And then they did like a live where they could do fan interaction. I, I forget if they premiered it, but they, that would be like a red carpet. Then they did like live Q&A where they could interact with the fans. And then they chopped up parts from the, the long form and parts from the live stream and made those into shorts like to remarket it. Like Marvel go, number one movie in America, everyone's seeing this. And that's like the power of a studio for like any creator yeah. now, which just yeah. excites me as like someone who loves like what studios have been able to do but can never do them. But on the other hand, like if you are just a video essayist, you might be perfectly happy just doing video essays. Or if you're just doing like pranks and stunts and like magic tricks, maybe long form video is not great for you. You just have the ability to do shorts. Or you're a gamer and you're just streaming. And like you could make VODs, you could make shorts, but you just love streaming. So we, we want to try and give you the tools, but not force anybody to use them. So I wanted to ask a few questions about shorts, kind of to pivot back to that. And maybe this is more and more personal, but about eight months ago, we created a new channel dedicated just to shorts all on space news and space facts called Interstellar News. And I have never seen a channel blow up this fast since the early days of YouTube. In about eight months, we're at over a quarter million subscribers. We're averaging between eight and 10, generally eight and 10 million views per month. I think this month was down a little bit and it's awesome. And the growth has been tremendous. The interaction has been great. So YouTube Shorts got monetized and obviously it's a totally different beast how it gets split and who gets a cut. There's no pre-roll, no mid-roll and kind of those things. So, I, you know, I think like most creators on the shorts platform, we're trying to temper expectations. But on a channel that got 10 million views in one month, I believe we made $400. <laughs> so I think that begs the question for creators who are looking at YouTube shorts as a way to sustain a business or at least be a profitable venture for them or worth the time. How does YouTube plan on making shorts sustainable for creators when the revenue might as well be non-existent? Wait, John, before we any answers, could you give the audience, so the, the amount of views that you just mentioned that you got $400 for, what would you typically expect in a long form video for that? 10 million views on regular AdSense, 40,000 maybe? I mean, I'm guessing, but right. around, around but, but there. Maybe like around a hundred times more. Yeah. I mean, say between conservatively 25 to $50,000, depending okay. on time, time of year. I mean, so- we're talking giant dollars and it's not the same beast. I don't want to present it as the same beast. It's not, it's not as easy to monetize or anything there at all, but it was surprising after month after month, we haven't seen much of a ramp up. I mean, we're still at a cent CPMs. I think that's where the disappointment is. I was expecting a cent to maybe start to increase up. So a lot of questions for shorts creators. How can YouTube expect them to continue with it? If it's not going to be monetarily worth the time. 
Yeah, sure. So I'm going to answer like the first part of that too, because I think that's fascinating as well. Like, so one of the things with shorts is that the barrier of entry to long form kept getting higher and higher to the point where like you have mutual friend MKBHD with like three robot arms in a video, you know, like people are (laughs) are spending millions of dollars on YouTube videos now. And like me at the zoo would have been like a YouTube short, like when it first started, like that's what YouTube was like. So one of the things with short form video was that we wanted to, again, make like a really accessible product for people who just want, like just had their phone, just getting started. They could make a video and go with it. And I think just like long form, like had no monetization at first, and then it had very few partners, and then it grew from there. I think we're just at the very beginning of the story on shorts monetization. And I think it was really important because a lot of platforms started with a creator fund, but a creator fund is capped, meaning the more people who are involved, the less money each person gets. So we wanted to move to what we consider to be vital to the success of YouTube. Because I think like when people say like when YouTube says creators are the heart of YouTube, they really mean that. And that there's a firm belief in the company that YouTube only succeeds when creators succeed. We all succeed together. And the partner program has to be based on revenue sharing. That way we can grow together. Like it's like we're in this together. We're growing together. And I think it was really important for us just to continue that sort of like for the industry, a historic partnership, because a lot of companies just don't act that way. So we knew it was in the beginning it was going to be different to your point, because for a long form video, there is pre-roll, mid-roll, post-roll. There's all these different ads individually attributed to that video, where with shorts form, it's almost the opposite, where you have like a bunch of shorts and then an ad, and that ad is pooled and spread around those shorts. So one is like the model is so different. Two, I think short is just ramping up and we'll see it ramp up with creators and with advertisers. But I think YouTube also doesn't want to wait. So the same way we introduced I forget, like there's like 14 or 15 ways just inside YouTube, like never mind sponsors, affiliates, all those things, inside YouTube to monetize long form. We're trying to put all of that out for shorts now. So you have shopping, I think launched a couple days ago with shorts. So you can tag products. So like I, the last one I made, I tagged a MacBook Pro and a studio display in it, you know, and there's affiliate revenue attached to that. Super thanks for shorts, memberships for shorts, because some creators just aren't advertiser friendly and will never be advertiser friendly. So it doesn't matter how successful the advertiser model is. It's just there, but they can blow it up on membership. Like they just get ridiculous. So we want to make sure all of those things. So I totally hear you about it it is where it is. I think it's going to grow, but I think the potential for it is not limited to ad revenue. Just like on my channel, AdSense is great, but like there's so many things like, and I'm sure you guys did this too. Like I know Andrew did this, especially during the pandemic, the things that you can build on that platform when you have an audience and a community, it's almost limitless. And we've already seen some, like for example, where I live in Canada, there was no creator fund on other platforms. So People had to get really inventive on how they use their platform to make money. I think that's what we're going to see. We're going to see YouTube revenue ramp up through a variety of different monetization options. And we'll also see creators learning how to use short form to either drive to long form or to drive to their own products. I think creator products are blowing up in general these days. It's just ridiculous. Like if, if you can find a really good fit with the, like your own product that you own everything to and you have that audience, I think that's where we're going to see a lot of the power of shorts just because the reach is so great. So for people who would say this to YouTube or YouTube saying this to creators, and I've I've heard this a few times, is Shorts is a great platform, but it's not worth it. It's not worth the time. For established creators that have sort of made content creation a living, they have other avenues to sell their products. They have other avenues to monetize or put in sponsorships. I think a lot of people are still having a hard time seeing the value add behind Shorts. Now, if it's a hobby and it's a funny way to post videos, certainly there's benefit there, right? It's a great avenue to get you said 50 million views a day, something just obscene there. But to people who are doing this, the creators who create by jobs, Shorts is still a tough platform and it's really an incredibly tough sell. Personally, when I was in the creator fund, I was 
you know, those views are making four or $5,000. Now, you know, it's 10% of that if I'm lucky. What I'm kind of ask is what's the benefit to establish creators to use shorts? We had Michelle Carre at YouTube headquarters last week. She's, people aren't familiar. She's challenge accepted, complete badass, just fought box. Like she learned to be a chess champion. Now she learned to be a boxing champion. She trained with the secret <laughs> service, trained with the FBI, total utter badass. And she was just talking because it takes her a while. Her videos are like network TV shows. Like they are immaculately produced. Her, the one she put up this week, the boxing one is like 50 minutes of like documentary quality YouTube. And she was saying that she uses shorts because one, it takes her a while to put out her videos. And she did say like at the beginning, like you can make your shorts a billboard for your long form, but she sees a lot more potential in it. Like she sees it as a way to just stay in connection with her audience in between videos because it takes her a while to make those videos. She sees it as a way to introduce herself to new audiences because there are viewers. And I always say like creators should spend a lot of time thinking like viewers. I think sometimes creators get in their own mind and think like, what's in it for the creator? But viewers have like total agency as well. And she just thought like, there's all these viewers who don't know about me and I can get in front of them. And yes, maybe like the short itself isn't converting at the rate of my long form, but I can get them interested in my merch. I can get them interested in my long form. I can get them interested in all these other things about me or just build awareness of me. So there's all of those different factors. And like, you might think, oh, like I don't get monetary value from it where someone else could say, oh, this is like the best form of trailers and teasers for my videos ever. So I think every creator should just test it and see if it's worth their effort or not. Okay. That's fair. You were talking about YouTube for the viewer. I think a lot of times when we as creators talk about YouTube, we're always focused on the creator point of view. Do you have any insight or things to share for the people who are our listeners who are just, we just listen, we watch YouTube. We don't make videos. I know you're the creator liaison. You're not the viewer liaison, but (laughs) is there anything to share with them? I think like, again, like YouTube is trying to find the videos that will make you happiest at any given point of time on any given device. And you can modulate that by disliking a video. Like that means that you'll get less videos like that or by saying you're not interested in video. So you can sort of curate your experience there. And and then like just find creators you like. And exp- I spend like an hour every day just watching YouTube, like outside my own personal interests. I try to find like what's happening, like what's what's being, what's innovative, how are different creators approaching it just to learn what YouTube's like. And also, like, I think people should think like an advertiser, too, because I know we had like we were doing the ad friendly guidelines and we're like, oh, oh, no, it's not going the way we wanted. But like at the same time, people like I just want to put my video up and just get ads on. It's like, yes, but maybe Kleenex doesn't want you dropping an F-bomb the second their ad ends, you know, like maybe wait a few, (laughs) wait a few seconds. Just think about if you're doing it for art's sake, that's fine. Just do whatever you want. But if you're trying to grow an audience, think about the audience and what would make them happy. And if you're trying to grow a business, think about the advertisers and how you can make an ad friendly. It's like Hollywood, you know, like Deadpool has an R rating. That means they're taking extra artistic license at the expense of some revenue. Other movies are like G rated because they want like the biggest family potential audience ever. And that's a decision every creator of every media type has to wrestle with. I want to hit you with a piece of feedback as a viewer, not as a creator. Because you mentioned how you spend, said about an hour or something, just trying to watch. I find, so you know how you can go to a hotel these days and sometimes they'll have like streaming platforms and YouTube will be one of them just built into the smart TV. I find that when I'm logged in to YouTube versus when I'm not logged in, I see so many more interesting things that I would never see when I'm logged in. It's almost like- That's a fair point. How do I get to these things? Why am I never shown these things? Like, obviously I make tech videos and I watch tech content. So it's going to be, my feed is going to be heavily tech influenced. But even when I tap on like the new to you section, I don't know if that's new channels or new topics, 
But it seems like obviously YouTube being the famously second most used search engine in the world and the amount of content uploaded per minute is staggering. Sometimes I feel like, how do I get to all that content? Because like I'll scroll and I'll get to the end of a feed. and It's like, no, I know there's more here. How do I get to it? Yeah, it's a tough challenge because like when you open up your homepage on mobile, you can see two or three videos like just stacked up on order. And if one of those interests you, you're clicking into one of those and you're gone. So there might be like a bunch of other stuff lower. You'd never see it. Same thing on the homepage. There's like eight videos and we want those videos to make you happy. So like, it's not like, oh, here's the YouTube homepage. Nothing for me. Bye. That's bad for everybody. So like yeah. we try to pick videos that we think you're going to watch. And all of those videos is like we weigh them. Like how much is Andrew going to enjoy them? And to go back to shorts for a minute, because shorts are lighter weight, I think we can be more experimental with our recommendations there because recommending you a bad VOD is like, that's heavy. Like, it's like, ah, this is terrible. But like recommending you a bad short, it's just swipe. We're careful to try to introduce things like the new topics, but it's really hard to guess what you want to watch that we don't have any idea that you want to watch. That's like a very hard problem to solve for. And we can try like with new to you to get like one step further removed from what you're currently watching. But like to figure out, oh, I know Andrew would love this, even though he's never told us I would. That's like minority report level prescience, which I hope somebody's working on that because I would love that. Am I alone going to YouTube sometimes? I'll go in an incognito window to search for a topic that I don't want like a bunch of videos on. Like if I'm playing Tears of the Kingdom and I want to know how to do a shrine walkthrough, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want 400 shrine walkthrough videos coming at me. Yeah, I make the mistake of clicking on things that people are complaining about and it goes like, and it goes into my logged in account. And then I'm like, <laughs> why am I getting all this stuff for recommendations? Like, oh yeah, I totally tainted my recommendations. So Renee, we hit you with a bunch of YouTube and a bunch of questions. And I solicited some of these questions from social media as well. These are tough questions to answer, I think, right? Because you're, you're not YouTube. You know, you're kind of representing YouTube as a platform, but also being able, from a creator standpoint, you are a creator. You know, you understand that perspective as well. And those are hard questions to answer. But can we throw it a bit old school? Can I give you just one last thing before we, before we should? Yes, absolutely. So I, I, I love answering these questions because I don't always give great answers, but I want to learn and give better answers. And I want, like, I think YouTube as a core wants to be more responsive to creators. And we're also doing like this on Creator Insider, which is a great channel if you haven't heard of it. It's literally the YouTube product team made their own channel just so they could have a, like a more direct relationship with creators. We're doing interviews there. Like we had Matt Halperin, who's a global head of trust and safety, explaining how community guidelines work and like how mass flagging can't take down a video, but why some things are really challenging to know like the exact context for. We just had Dave Rosenstein, who runs copyright and content ID, going through how some of that works. We're going to have Todd Beaupre, who some of you might know, runs growth and discovery at YouTube. We're doing a Q&A on what the algorithm is like in a multi-format, multi-language, because we have multi-language audio now as well. Like we want to be as transparent as we possibly can and give creators as much information as they can. And that's what makes my job personally like really interesting. I want those answers and I want to share as many of those answers as I can and get better at answering them, frankly. Yeah. What's the most frustrating part of this job for you? That there's just so many people I want to help. And it's not just when, when, it, when it, I can't help somebody, like sometimes there's, there's things will happen where I'm like, oh, I mean, you just did that. Like you did that and I can't help you because you did it. And I still want to, like, because I want a positive resolution for you, but being able to help more people, I think that, but that's going to be a constant thing. Is there a way for smaller creators, newer creators to get access to somebody at YouTube to answer these questions? Maybe they're learning the platform, they make a mistake, they do something that's not, not say brand approved, but violates terms of service inadvertently, they didn't realize. And then to talk to somebody or try to get it resolved is sometimes tough, right? It's automated. And obviously just by the number of users out there, that can't always be somebody. But is there a way for creators to talk to somebody at YouTube to try to get these things 
resolved when appropriate for it to be resolved. Yeah, I think like Team YouTube on Twitter, like those are all human beings. I mean, there's they're massively scaled all, yeah. and they're across different regions and time zones. And I know like once in a while, there'll be an incorrect handoff and someone will get like, wait a minute, it feels like I'm starting over again. We try to minimize that as much as possible, but it is because we have so many people in so many time zones, all trying to do the best job they can. And customer support, like if you are partnered, you have customer support inside YouTube studio, but otherwise team YouTube is just like, they are superheroes every day and we all work together. So I get to see like the lens and just, like how much they care. And sometimes it's like, People will say, like, it's a machine. I'm like, no, 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 I know that person. Like, I know the person sitting behind there, and they're really awesome. So I think just do that. And then I try to help as much as possible with, like, the platform-wide issues. So anytime something is, like, affecting a lot of people, I try to help with that as well. Will there ultimately be a lot of Renees? Will there be a, more creator liaisons that can sort of take on more? Or is this a, a single-person job? Just based on like there's one search liaison, there's one ads liaison, and there's one creator liaison. And I think the role is very specific to like, I don't want to say ambassador because that's like the wrong take on it, but it's like very much that human face on it. And I think the support organizations are so massive that that's the best way to scale it for now is to have like a human face that can handle with a creator perspective that can provide feedback on that. But then just like as much creator support, I forget the number, but like we managed to increase creator support dramatically, sorry, dramatically is not a real word, dramatically <laughs> last year. And I think we want to continue doing that. That makes sense. All right. So I want to, I want to pivot just a little bit because I really want to hear your opinion on this. I want to talk about Apple for a minute. It's a company, you know, right? Hold on, hold on, hold on. I had a, I have one. All I had right. Something. All right. All right. We are going to talk about Apple. Okay, go ahead. But there was one thing I wanted to get. See if, see if there was any any more information okay. Renee might be able to share publicly. We hung out at uh, Google I.O. a couple weeks ago, which was a fantastic event. One of the biggest, if not the biggest theme of the event was AI. And one thing that was said there, kind of in passing, but also said in the past by YouTube's new CEO, was that YouTube would be utilizing AI to help creators in the future. Do you know what that means? How? We've talked about some of it already. Like obviously all the stuff that Google's doing with BART and with large language models, you have to assume that's going to impact creators because they're already using it. Like there are already content strategists and like right. YouTube, like, yeah. like retention experts just using the heck out of BART to figure out things at scale that they just couldn't do before. But also Meal, our new CEO, has talked about, for example, using AI to swap out your clothes in a video or using AI to generate like a virtual background or set for you. And like we saw Google also talk about paint in and paint out, which I love, which is like when you magic erase or something or you move something in and it has to figure out. Because all like large language models do is like, what's the next pixel or what's the next word? And it tries to figure out what that is. So like, I would love it if I'm off center in a video and now I have to like zoom in and then move it over. But if it could just figure out those pixels for me, like, like that, all of that kind of stuff, I think. And I know some creators are nervous because they're like, I'm a creator. I don't want these machines doing it. My optimistic take is that they will end up doing 80% of like the repetitive grunt work that we have to go through every day and liberate us to focus on that 20% of creator work. It's like if you're doing email support, 80% of those emails are almost identical. Like you have to personalize them, yeah. but they're almost identical. And there's like 20% of like really gnarly cases that you need a lot of personalization to. If it can take over more of that, like just the repetitive tap, like chop up this video for me, get rid of all the silent parts, give me all the takes. 
or like storyboard, like give me five storyboard ideas for this. Like if, if it could do that, give me eight iterations of a thumbnail for this. Like this is nothing that yeah. we've announced, but just as a creator, these are things that I'm just dreaming yeah. of. And then like, I don't have to sit there and laboriously draw out like everything in my head. I can just say, yes, I like this one. We could be like George Lucas who gets like all the options and then picks them out. That's my beautiful dream for AI. That would be incredible. So you just basically just shoot a video, upload it to YouTube, no editing, let YouTube figure it out, pick a few things, hit publish, monetize. Well, I think like rough cut, like just as a creator, I would always want final cut, not to make like the final cut joke, but like if it can do the rough cut for me and like if it could like find B-roll for me, like if it could do the things that take me time, but aren't creative, I would love that. All right, John, back to you. Lead us in. All right. I want to know what Renee thinks about the Apple headset. I'm just going to jump right into it. Obviously, it's rumored. We don't know anything much about it, but like, I don't know. What are your thoughts? What's Apple going to make the killer feature? How are they going to sell this? If it is $3,000, like how is this going to be marketed? Like, I'm just, I'm just itching to hear your thoughts yeah. on Apple's first new product category. There would have been eight Renee videos about this. Yes. Yeah. If he was just full-time creator. So we, we want to know. Yeah. So I think if you look at how Apple operates, they, they are secretive, but they're also like, they don't like go wildly all over the place. Like they're not willy-nilly in their yeah, strategy. Sure. So I think looking back, we'll see that the VR headset, like the mixed reality headset is an extension of the Apple TV product where it's meant for like, why let the family buy a $200 box when each individual can buy a $3,000 headset, right? Like that's just money on the table. I'm kidding. But if you look at everything they've put together for Apple TV now, that makes a lot of sense in mixed reality. Like if you can have workouts and educational programming and games and just all of those things available to you, along with like some work and productivity things, like I don't think it's going to be metaverse. Jaws said he'll never say the word metaverse, which is nice. Like they don't want you to be like, put this thing on your head and never take it off. They're like, I want to have a cool experience. I'm going to put this on, enjoy that experience, then take it off again. So it, it really is a personal entertainment device. And then I think the watch will evolve into the glasses, like the augmented reality glasses, where they're, at least in the beginning, very dependent on external compute power, but they give us a variety of convenience, like notifications and glanceable data that is just easy. Because like we used to have to go across the room to our computer or go get our laptop. And then suddenly it was, pick the phone out of our pocket. And that's, that's too much. Now I just glance at my wrist and eventually yeah. be like, well, I have to lift <laughs> my wrist to look at like the weather? No, I just want that icon in, in my eyesight. <laughs> So you'll have those, like the mixed reality headset will just expand and extend what Apple TV does and the AR glasses will expand and extend what Apple Watch does. Do you see this view being a tough sell for just an expanding of current uh, offerings? If the rumored price is correct of $3,000. Yeah, I mean, like the iPad was rumored for $1,000. So I never know how much to trust those estimates. But I think if you look at the longer arc of history, like eventually the, these will be implants. And there has to be something that takes us from A to B. And no one wants to have like a phone and like, or we'll have like a little cube that all it does is do local authentication. It proves biometrically that we are who we are and gives us access to everything stored on the cloud. And then all the interfaces will be opportunistic. Like we'll pick up any sheet of glass, we'll put on our glasses, we'll go into a wall, like a room covered in LCDs, and it will just present interface to us in the best way that is like for that particular situation. And getting there requires these awkward steps like the Trio before the iPhone or like the Pebble before the watch. And none of these are perfect. Like they feel really normal, but I think like Andrew 3000 is going to just tap his temple or something or like his communicator. And then like all that stuff just has to be there. Apple is not usually the company that bridges that gap. They traditionally have, they sort of went in after the fact, you know, tablets have been around for a while. Then the iPad came around and the iPad still exists in its current form. Maybe it'll be ultimately be viewed as a bridge device, something else, but that's a, you know, a decade long product. It's just going to be really interesting, I think, for me to see how Apple positions this and what their 
their use cases. I think they're incredible about presenting ways that people need something they didn't know they needed. And I'm just, I'm excited to see what that's going to be. Renee, what would you, what would make you buy it? Well, so like my guess is it's going to be like the first watch presentation where they're legitimately like the phone had been around for like, even the smartphone had been around for 10 years. The power, the tablet PC had been around for 10 years. Pebble had been around for like five years. VR headsets, even mixed reality headsets like Microsoft's have been around for like five, seven years now. So there is some roadmap, but like you said, crossing the chasm, like mass adoption, killer feature sets aren't clear. So my guess is it'll be a bit like the watch where they maybe go over broad. Maybe they learn they go over narrow, but I think it'll be sort of unclear exactly what everyone's going to use this for or a large enough market's going to use it for. And they'll have an array of features and the message won't be as like polished as like even like the the iPhone 3G and like the iPad 2 were so much better than the first ones, like quantum leap better than the first ones. I think that this will be that situation where it really is that like the minimum viable product. And then like Gen 2 and Gen 3 will be leaps and bounds better. What would you want to see personally, though? So take yourself out of the creator mindset and the analyst mindset, and you're just a consumer. What would you hope to see announced that would get you personally excited to spend that much money? $1,500 to $3,000. Yeah. I mean, like people like us are going to buy it. So like, I think it's always going to be an easier sell, but like, and I don't think it's going to be like a mass adopted product anytime soon. But for me, it would be like, can you change my reality? Like, can I be there in the fitness plus studio working out with you? Can I be on the top of the volcano looking into it? Can I play a game where I really feel like I am racing down this cliff with like the Tron cycle or something? Can you put me in an experience? And I've bought every headset. Like I literally, I bought the Oculus Rift. I bought the, the HTC Vive Pro, the Valve index, the first Facebook portable, I forget what that was called, you had to sit down, it didn't even like walk around with you. And then like the next two, like I bought all of them, used all of them. Interesting. I love those experiences, but they just, they didn't stick. Like they're great, but they were like so edge case that they didn't stick. And I'm hoping Apple takes at least one tiny little step, if not a giant leap towards making them more effortless. But that's interesting. So you actually, I mean, based on what you just said, I don't think I know anyone who has used VR or all the various platforms more than you have. Well, there is Georgia who keeps stealing them from me. I mean, that's... (laughs) Fair enough. What, I mean, you're not going to keep buying these things if you don't like it, right? So what is it that you love about VR today? And what's the missing piece that isn't making it stick that you're hoping to see when you buy a new one? Yeah. So like the original PlayStation VR, it was nowhere nearly as good as things like the Rift or the Valve Pro, the Index. But I put that thing on and I looked down and I was freaking Batman. I was the damn Batman. <laughs> and like, I looked at my hands and I looked up and I was Batman. And it was like the Arkham Asylum team. So it was like a really good Batman. And like, there's just nothing else that delivers that. But it was like short and spotty. And some of the apps don't properly understand. Like, like it's a really bad experience if you're focusing on a different plane than what you're looking at. Or if the horizon is changing when you're not. So like, there's a lot of like, rough edges to it. And if Apple could just provide like a typical Apple polish where like I'm putting it on and, and like they could screw it up by being too Apple by saying like, oh, you've got to get prescription. Like one of the rumors is you got to get prescription lenses for it. You can't wear your glasses in it. Like, and that to me is like another barrier or like the battery pack is separate. Like they could be too Apple about it, but if they just managed to polish it where it's like, I can just forget, I can, I can melt away completely into this experience. I think that would be marvelous. John, how, how have your opinions changed on this thing? I don't think this is going to be $3,000. It very well could be, but I don't. I'm thinking back to rumors of Apple Watch Ultra, iPad rumor pricing. I think if, if, if any company could take a slight loss on this, 
you know, it would be Apple. But I really think that it's going to come down to how they market this. And I've said this seemingly every podcast. They just somehow insinuate or call this a developer device that ultimately will lead to a consumer device. I think there's Apple gets carte blanche to price it however they want and sales numbers won't matter. Similar to the original Galaxy Fold. I think that's where Samsung missed the mark. Yes. Yeah. Public betas are hard. The one thing that gives me red flags, though, is that Apple, for some reason, is just intransient about certain things like on the App Store and not having Game Pass, not having like streaming games. It'd be like not Mm. having streaming video. Like, I can't imagine there won't be Netflix and Disney Plus on this thing, but I'm absolutely positive there's not going to be Xbox Game Pass. And that to me is just a huge loss because they're like, just let people stream their games. It's no different. Unless you get third-party app stores, right? Allegedly coming. Mm. But it's still not competitive with like someone who has access to almost the entire catalog of Microsoft or Sony or whomever, like whomever's games. You know, Microsoft has done a, I don't know how, yeah. a fantastic job of getting Game Pass to work on Apple devices through Safari. Like when you hear it, it sounds like, okay, this is going to suck, but it actually works really well. Thank goodness for WebGL. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think some people even thought that Apple might, I mean, it was, a, I think it was a silly, silly conclusion that Apple might actually hinder Safari in ways so that game streaming wouldn't work great. But like on the Apple TV, there's no, like they don't surface WebKit. There's no WebKit APIs for developers. Right. They're all first party. And like, I'm assuming this will be the same thing. Like I would love a Safari browser, love a fully functional Safari browser with WebGL so I could get that, but I don't know. If there's a headset that you hope people could also do work in, yeah. Not including Safari seems super strange. But it could be like Safari VR that has a very limited set of APIs at the beginning. Oh, God. Terrible. Or Safari, Terrible. like Safari, whatever, XR, whatever they're calling XR OS. Rene, let me ask you, a, let's close it out with this one. Just some thoughts on the Pixel Fold and Foldable in general. The reason I want to ask you is because, again, prior to you working at YouTube, you were primarily focused on Apple as a company. Primarily, I assume, using Apple devices. I know you would buy the Pixel on an annual basis. I don't mm-hmm. know if you were buying Samsung foldables, though. Since the Nexus 1, I've been buying the Apple phone okay. and the Google phone every year. So Almost every year. It sounds to me like you probably don't have a lot of time spent with the foldables. And the foldables available in America have only been Samsung's foldables. What do you think of the Pixel Fold, number one. And number two, do you think we will see something similar from Apple? Or do you think like, you know, John Prosser, for example, Apple's never going to put a foldable out because it's almost a fad. Yeah. So like almost every year for the last five years, you know, mutual friend Michael Fisher and I were at an offsite, like like a mobile nations meetup. I made a video with a lot of his help on why Apple should make a foldable. Like not immediately, but I mean like it should make one. And I think the tech, like the history of human technology is folding things. We fold wallets, we fold laptops, we fold books, we fold tacos. Like it's just like there's a lot of things that would be very large and we decided to sacrifice some depth index in order to make the surface smaller. And it has a lot of practical reasons. And I know like I can fit an iPad mini in my non-hipster jeans back pocket. A lot of people can't, but like they can fit a foldable and there are use cases where you just want to carry that. And I'm not talking about like like the Captain Kirk, like that's cool. Like you can flip open a phone, you know, Kirk to Enterprise. That's great. That's a lot of fun. But like having a <laughs> tablet that you can just fold up and put in a pocket, I think is valuable. And I get that Apple doesn't think the technology is there yet. Like they have certain things that they want, like they'll tell you it's like elementary school level and or high school level and they want it to be a postgraduate before they put that technology out there. I totally get that. Apple is not always, not almost never first to market, but 
they've been experimenting with like hingeables since like the iPhone 4, the iPhone 4S. Like they know that this is a thing. You know, they've made out laptops for a long time, laptops fold. So I think like if the market is not a fad, if there's something that doesn't replace it, because we want like the Tony Stark experience. That's what this all boils down to. Like with large language models, with voice assistance and with mixed reality, those are the components you need to make like Friday or to make Jarvis where you're like, Andrew's inventing a molecule by moving the stuff around and telling the computer to help him like put this up there, do this. And then I'm moving this around. That's the interface we want. And those are the components to get there. So if we get there fast enough and Apple slow enough with foldables, we'll never see one. But like, this is the company that didn't make a big phone until the iPhone 6. You know, like they take their time. So I would absolutely love to see one. I think they could make a very good one because I think size classes and auto layout and all the APIs that Apple have would make it a really, really good experience. And because they build the software so specifically for the hardware, I think there would be like zero latency and moving between screens or doing any of those things. I think it'd be a, a tremendous experience. I'm super glad Google's making one. I've been asking Google to make one for years and years and years, just as a creator, like not as like someone who now works for Google. Yeah, yeah. And so like Apple's like the one I want to see next. I don't know if they'll do it, but I really hope they do. Do you think, you know, like we've said earlier today, like Apple kind of waits for things to kind of mature. Do you think foldables are in that area where, you know, it's been almost five years, I guess. Is it a mature enough space to enter now for Apple? Or do you still feel, despite how long they've been out, that they're still kind of too new, too niche? I think we're getting there. I think it's also product market fit. Like, like, is Apple seeing enough pressure in the premium market to make them think they have to? I think Apple's also becoming a little bit too much fan surfacey lately, which worries me. Like I always said, like if Apple starts listening to Twitter, like that's a bad sign. I think they're listening to Twitter way too much lately. Like making small phones, that was a like very niche thing. And it panned out. Nobody really bought them. That was a Twitter thing. Putting like HDMI and SD card slots on a MacBook Pro and calling it Pro. Pros don't use those. Pros use like ultra fast cards. They use SD. Like those are. I use them, sir. Yes, but we are prosumers. We are not pros. (laughs) Like there is a level of pros Uh, who would just give me six lightning ports and I will dongle them to whatever new version of this protocol comes out every year and a half. And you can't dongle an HDMI slot card. You can't dongle an SD card slot. So like they're like, I have CF Express cards. I have SDI pipes. I have like whatever the net, like this SD card is not the fastest one available and you can't push, like you have to sacrifice a Thunderbolt port to get the faster HDMI or the faster SD. That's not pro, that's prosumer. And I know it made like the Twitter people really happy and like the prosumer gadget reviewers really happy. But for me, it's like before they were like, we're flying fast to the future. Keep up with us if you can. And now it's sort of like, yeah, we're listening. And I'm just like, I hope the more driven Apple makes a resurgence. I think we'll get a lot more exciting technology. Did you pre-order Pixel Fold? Yeah. Well, through a friend, it's not available in Canada because, you know, I don't know, but I got a friend of mine to order it for me and I'm looking forward to picking it up. Renee, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It was fantastic. Oh, thank you. I felt like it was like a rapid fire, like Q&A. I mean, like, we came at you, we came at you pretty fast with the, like we said, with I'm a lot of stuff. It. I appreciate the, and I appreciate the candor, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the honesty and also the, a fair discussion about the platform shortcomings too, which is nothing is ever perfect. So that's, it's always refreshing to, to hear and to, to see. If we couldn't fix things, there'd be very little work to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is it for this edition of Geared Up. Thank you so much for listening. Of course, you can catch John and I on YouTube. I'm at youtube.com slash gear live. And John is at youtube.com slash John for Lakers. Feel free to head over and subscribe to our channels to stay up to date on all the latest tech. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to Geared Up in your favorite podcast app if you haven't done so already. Just search Geared Up. That's two words, not one. 
in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or really wherever you choose to listen. If you like what we do, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the show. Geared Up is a Gear Live podcast, and you can see more from us at GearLive.com. Thank you so much for listening. For John Rettinger, I'm Andrew Edwards, and we'll catch you in the next episode.